In the Sydney Morning Herald this morning, water safety groups are urging older people, particularly men, to be careful in the water this summer after a concerning rise in drownings among active seniors. The lifeguards are back on patrol on New Zealand's beaches, a welcome sign of summer, even though the great year of rain persists. Not bad in the north today and warm, not so flash in the south, but El Nino is knocking on the door. 69 people have drowned this year, sadly. It was the same at this time last year, the exact same number. And around 50 people may drown this coming summer if numbers stay consistent. They don't need to. Four in ten fatalities off our beaches are because of rips. One in six swimmers have been caught in a rip in their lives. Only 60% managed to escape by themselves. The other 40% perished or needed rescuing. Many people who survive rips never swim in the ocean again. Dr. Rip is joining us. Dr. Rip's lesser-known name, maybe, is Rob Brander. He's a coastal geomorphologist and a professor in the School of Biological Earth and Environmental Sciences at the University of New South Wales. His mission is educating us about RIPs. He's received the Order of Australia for the time he's put into this, visiting schools, educating people nonstop. And his website is scienceofthesurf.com. Rob's on Facebook as well. And now he's written Dr. RIP's Essential Beach Book, Everything You Need to Know About Surf, Sand and RIPs. Good morning, Dr. RIP. Good morning, Jim. I guess you get called Dr. Rip a bit now, too. Um, I actually do a lot, and it's it's quite surprising how many people have heard that nickname and kind of recognize who I am through that nickname, but it's it's stuck. Uh, I think it was the lifeguards at Bondi Beach who coined that term. I think it was them because they give everyone nicknames, and uh, I've been Dr. Rip ever since, yeah. <laughs> you were afraid of the water as a boy, though. Yeah, I was. Um, it's interesting that because... We always used to go on family holidays from Toronto and Canada to the east coast of the United States to a place called Cape Cod. And I just was, I, I like the water. I love the ocean, but just not being in it, I would play in the water, but only just in the shallows, And which must have been incredibly uh, frustrating for my parents looking back. But, but once I opened my eyes in the water, that was it. And that was about 10 years old. And, and then it was game on. Yeah, game on. It certainly has been for you. You got caught in a big rip once off one of the Auckland beaches. Yes, but on purpose. So we did a, an experiment at Murawai Beach. This is in the late 90s because we'd been doing experiments on rip currents, measuring the flow using instruments in Australia, uh, but we wanted to do some really big rips. And Murawai and Piha, you know, that, that they're known for that. So part of the experiments we did is um, we put in instruments in the rip current at Murawai. And if you know Murawai, there's a big, long, often a long channel that runs along the beach. So the rip starts flowing along the beach. And we thought we'd be able to put these instruments in at low tide in the middle of the rip, but it was just so strong we couldn't do it. So we thought, well, how are we going to measure this thing? And we ended up jumping in the rip ourselves, and we were waving a little flag, and there was two of our colleagues on the sand dune sort of tracking us with theodolites. Um, And we ended up going a couple hundred meters along the beach and then sort of turning offshore. And before you knew it, we were way offshore. And as it turns out, we were about 400 meters offshore and still going. Um, but we had the local, the, the surf club's IRB, the inflatable rescue boat, pick us up. Otherwise, it would have been terrifying. I mean, it was sort of terrifying enough because when you're 400 meters offshore, you can't see the beach. It's just walls of water everywhere. So I wasn't necessarily caught in it on purpose, although during that experiment, we were doing some surveys of the uh, the, the sandbars, 
and a, a wave knocked me off the sandbar into this feeder current, and I could barely get back. It was terrifying, and I just thought if if I don't get back to the beach swimming as hard as I can, um, I'm looking at a helicopter rescue because we didn't have any backup boats at the time. It's an interesting story. I've heard expert advice. You know those interviews they do on the news over summer um, saying the rip will bring you back into shore. It won't always. Not always. It's a nice, it's a nice, I mean, a lot of rips do recirculate and it might take a few minutes if you're just floating and they might recirculate you back into the shallow bar, but they don't always do that. And, and often rip currents will just spit you out the back um, beyond the breaking waves. And that might be 20, 30, 50 meters, or in the case of Murawai, 400 <laughs> meters. So it would be nice if they all did bring you back because then you would say, well, look, just float. You're going to be fine. And, and floating always is the best response but they don't always recirculate this very good crusade of yours began i think by a chilling scene you witnessed at our hot water beach yeah that's right um so i was i was working in wellington at victoria university in the late 90s um we went up for a holiday to the coromandel to hot water beach which i'd actually been to before um, and if you don't know Hot Water Beach, it's got the natural hot springs bubbling up on the beach, and it's a big tourist mecca, and people bring shovels, dig a hole, have a little jacuzzi. And normally Hot Water Beach is quite a, you know, it gets a decent swell, um, so it gets a lot of lot of waves and often rips. But on this day, it was it was beautiful, flat, calm day. Um, you know, there was almost no waves at all. But there was a rip current, and I could see this rip. The surface was a little bit bumpy and ripply because there were some rocks nearby, and I just took a picture. Um, to show my students that, well, even when the waves are small, you can still get um, rip currents. And I didn't think anything of it. And then we went swimming further down the beach, and we heard some shouts, and we swam out, and I was a lifesaver at the time. And there was a young guy holding up an older man who had clearly drowned. And it was it was terrible. We got him back to the beach as fast as we could. There happened to be some doctors amongst the tourists, and they did CPR, couldn't save him. It turns out he was a, a German tourist he was there with his wife and his grandkids and you just thought this is terrible but the creepy thing was this is late 90s when i got my pictures developed a few weeks later there was a man standing waist deep in this perfectly calm water but near the rip and that was the man who drowned and as it turns out he couldn't swim he drifted offshore and he panicked i suppose and just drowned and and that just that hit me hard because i thought how how can you drown on a day where it's flat, calm, and it's beautiful. That should never have happened. And if only he had a little bit of knowledge of what was going on, he probably would have been okay. And that's when I felt, well, hang on. I've been studying rip currents for years. I've got this knowledge. I, I kind of felt I, I have this obligation to get it out to people. And people are curious about that knowledge, which we're going to get to. But in 2000, and that's a very sad story, that one. In 2005, in the Maldives, something else uh, was gruesome, wasn't it, when you came across it? Yeah, I mean, I, I actually worked with um, some colleagues from New Zealand, um, my colleague and friend Paul Kench, and he studied coral reef islands. I started studying it, and we did did a, a bunch of work together in the Maldives. And then, of course, the Boxing Day tsunami happened, and we immediately thought that the islands we had worked on must have been devastated. These were mostly uninhabited islands, but also some with villages. So we ended up going back about six weeks after the tsunami, back to the Maldives to try and look at the, the physical assessment of the damage in these islands. 
and we were working on one of the islands and I was walking around and these are coral reef islands so that the sand on this particular beach was made up of broken up bits of coral and I could hear this this sound this tinkling sound almost like chimes and I thought that's weird because no one was on this island and as I walked around then then there was a, a terrible smell and there was a corpse that had washed up um and it was fully dressed it had shorts belt uh, t-shirt on but it was basically a skeleton and it was the sound of the bones that was just sort of hitting the coral that was giving this tinkling sound so we notified the authorities they came with a boat and because we I found a few others as well and and that night i just thought you know we're um we're measuring minor physical changes to these islands and there's there's people from he, this person was probably from indonesia who drifted across and I thought there's a much bigger picture going on here, and and that was really where I I became a bit disillusioned with my science, and I just thought no, that I I really want to do something that that helps people, and I don't necessarily do anything about tsunamis, but I I, I try and help people through keeping them safe on beaches. But that was a yeah, looking back, that was quite a big moment actually. Yeah, that really did change your life. You took leave without pay from your job, didn't you? I did. So I started giving this talk called the Science of the Surf in schools. Didn't do a lot, but it was it was gratifying. And I actually took a second year leave without pay. And it was during that time when I thought, well, when I go back to the university, this is what I want to do my research on, um, beach safety education, and, and try and turn that into my research focus rather than measuring rip currents and, and measuring coastal systems. Dr. Rip's essential beach book, Everything You Need to Know About Surf, Sand and Rips, Professor Rob Brander is with us. So you're doing God's work or, or Poseidon's work, but um, do you get frustrated because you told the Sydney Morning Herald the other day that beachgoers would listen more about rips if they were told that sharks swim in them? That would make them think. I thought that was not a bad point. Well, it would absolutely work. Uh, I mean, there's a big problem with, with rip current drownings in Australia and New Zealand and many other places around the world, and it largely comes down to people are just unaware of what rips are and, and what they do and what they should do and they get stuck in them and we haven't done collectively a great job at, at educating people so you might have people come from inner, inner inner cities and and no one's teaching them and they get in trouble so i am i'm frustrated a little bit not at the people who get stuck in rips but by the fact that we haven't done a great job at educating people about rips and but everyone ever knows about sharks Every, everyone's afraid of sharks and if you did tell people sharks live in rips you, you, you'd you see a, a big uptick in people learning what rips are. Yeah, um, I'm But sure. we can't do that. No. <laughs> but advice to do on what to do when caught in a rip, I'm sure people are still confused about this. I know I am. My son, who's a surf lifesaver at Pihar, actually, says, if there are lifeguards, put your hand up and relax. You know, Other advice is swim sideways, but then you can get really tired. Let the current carry you out. And as you say, most times it might bring you back. That sounds frightening and and problematic so what is the rule of thumb if you end up in one well that's part of the problem because there's no single piece of advice that will always work in in all situations i mean the traditional advice that's always been around has been to, to if you get stuck in a rip swim parallel to the beach and that was based on very early measurements scientifically of rip currents it said that in a diagram in a book it said that rip currents go straight offshore and they go a long way so it kind of made sense to you know, if you swim parallel, you're going to get out of it and you won't be stuck way offshore. But the reality is, is that 
um, many rips don't go straight offshore. They go at angles to the beach. They do S bends, and and most people, you know, not most, but a lot of people can't swim, or they're poor swimmers. So we've done a lot of research. We've put people in rip currents, and we've tested, you know, should you float? Should you swim? Sometimes floating's great. Sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes swimming is great. Sometimes it doesn't work. But I think the industry as a whole, and your son is right, is that. You know, if you do get stuck in a rip, the best thing is always to try and relax and float. And it's difficult to say relax because the beach might be disappearing. But if you're floating, you're conserving your energy. You're giving yourself time to signal for help, which is absolutely what you should do. And if there's lifeguards, lifesavers, or even surfers around, um, they're they're going to get you. Um, but if you start start swimming, and a lot of people swim back to the beach against the rip, and these things flow incredibly fast. You're just going to tire yourself out in panic, and it's panic that drowns people. It's not the rips; they're not pulling you under. It's um, it's panic. So you got to treat it like a ride because that's what it is. And if there's somebody around to rescue you, then signal for help. I know experience, from experience though that when you do start to get worried out there, um, you also seem to lose flotation. That's the other thing. You don't actually float as well when you're scared stiff or panicking. Yeah, panic comes on quickly, very quickly, and I think. You know, I don't know the physiological reasons for that, but I think once people panic, they start to thrash around. They might take in a bit of water. And, and yeah, staying afloat isn't as easy as it sounds. And it's a fear thing. And I think, you know, we need to do some, I, I suppose, I guess psychologists have looked at the, you know, panic response. But in water, I mean, theoretically, you shouldn't sink when you're panicking, but it does seem to happen. I think it's just good because people get scared. And, um, yeah. But just float. You just got to float, tread water, float in your back, whatever. But you're going to be okay. I've heard you say you always need to stop and think about beach safety. You say it in the book. Um, some of the stories that our twins relate, because our daughter's a, um, a surf lifesaver too, are reasonably scary. And I've witnessed some of it myself, and I'm sure you have. People go into the sea on a whim, you know, because they're hot and jeans and this kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, you know, people make all sorts of decisions when to swim, and sometimes there's there's alcohol involved as well, and they're often they're often poor decisions, um, and they're not really aware of what's going on, and 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 you lose your footing if you're anywhere near a rip current. As long as your feet are in the sand, you're probably going to be okay. You could probably feel this current. You might want to get into shallower water again, but when you lose your footing, people say to me, "What does it feel like being stuck in a rip current?" And the answer is nothing. It doesn't feel like anything. You're just going with the flow. But when you look back, you can see the beach disappearing and suddenly you're getting hit by waves. And and if you're not familiar with that, it gets scary really fast. So this idea, I've always, my mantra has always been, you don't cross the road without looking both ways. And you should never go to any beach, whether there's lifeguards or not, without stopping and thinking about beach safety. Many of us just go into the surf on a big wave beach, get knocked down, get up again, go into the surf again. At what point does that become dangerous? Is there a rule of thumb regarding depth? Well, if you can't swim or you're a poor swimmer, if you're out of your depth, which means you're not, you know, your feet aren't on the sand, then you're at the mercy of currents. It's interesting because when you go to a beach that has a lot of breaking waves, I've got this saying, white is nice, green is mean. White is nice because the waves are breaking, because it's shallow, and you can probably stand up. And most of that white water is coming back to the beach. Green is mean because, you know, deeper water is always darker. And it could, so if you've got a dark gap or a path amongst the white water, it's probably a deep hole 
or a gutter or it could be a rip current. And those are the, the places you want to avoid if you're not a good swimmer because if you're playing in the breaking waves, there's, always, there's, there's a lot of water moving around. So the white water of breaking waves brings the water towards the shoreline, um, and, but that water's got to go back out, out somehow, and sometimes it's in rips. Sometimes you just get a drift off the bar. So there's always water moving around, and the danger of playing in, in waves of thinking is that you could be, without realizing it, drifting along towards a rip current, and then it takes you offshore, and, yeah. and then you're in trouble. In a lot of our beaches with the breaking waves, you've got sandbars, and, and they come in all sorts of different configurations. There's troughs, there's gutters, there's holes, and you can be in very shallow water, and then at several meters to your right, it drops off, mm. and you lose your footing. And yeah, it's, I mean, the, we call it the surf zone. It's, it's a complex, dynamic environment. Dr. Rip is with us. Dr. Rip's Essential Beach Book is what Professor Rob Brander has written. So people say, look for calm water, you know, there be rips. But if I find it hard to do that, other people must as well. And I think you were a bit like that once too. You couldn't pick them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you talk about defining moments. I I had done my undergraduate and master's degree at the University of Toronto in Canada studying beaches, and we would go away for months at a time diving and, and putting instruments in the water and measuring waves and currents. But I had never, of all the beaches I'd been to, I had never actually seen a rip current, although I'd been taught it in lectures, and I'd never really seen a good picture of a rip current. So after my master's degree, I went backpacking, as you do, I went to Australia, New Zealand. But my first stop was Australia and Sydney and uh, a PhD student at the university took me to the beach and it was Bronte Beach in Sydney if you know it and he said oh look at that rip that's a great rip and I said oh okay where where's this rip and he's pointing at it and I'm going yeah where, where is it and I could not see this rip current and I thought hang on I've been studying this thing out of <laughs> textbooks for years how can I not see it and not everyone gets a chance to go to a beach and have somebody point out the rip currents which is why it's a good idea Ask the lifeguards, right? Um, are there any rips around today? Uh, can you show me where they are? It's all experiential learning. If there are no lifeguards, are they easier to spot looking along a beach, you say? That was new information for me. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I, I see rips automatically now, and, and I, I guess I'm lucky that way or unlucky, but um, they're not easy to spot. I mean, some there's different types of rips. Um a common one sits in a deep channel, and those are the ones that look like the dark gaps, like these green paths going out through the whitewater. But they're always easier to see from elevation. So if you're on top of a sand dune or a headland and you're looking down, you you can, if you know what you're looking for, you can pick them out easier. But as you get lower on the beach, it gets hard. And when you're actually in front of a rip current, it's really actually hard to, to see it. Um, so, but if you look along the beach... Often these rips that are sitting channels, they can be there for days, weeks, and months, and they can actually um, erode the beach and create these little embayments. So if you look along the beach and you're seeing something different, you're seeing this sort of big scallop in the beach, that's different. And if you look, maybe there's a dark line, uh, you know, a dark gap heading offshore. Well, there's two visual clues there that that's a rip. But absolutely, from, from the actual shoreline, that's the hardest place to see them. Rips flow faster at low tide? Yes, uh, for the most part. Um, most beaches that have tide ranges, which is the difference between high tide and low tide of, say, three meters or less, you know, there's more waves breaking when it's shallow, and, and rips are driven by breaking waves. So generally on most beaches, uh, any anywhere like an hour and a half either side of 
of um, low tide, you're going to get stronger rip flows. And it's important to be aware of that. And, and actually at high tide, uh, often the rip flow stops. Flash rips. I came across flash rips in your book. They're your biggest enemy at the beach, I'm inferring, really. They can be. Um, flash rips are different. They don't sit in these deep channels. They're very unpredictable, and they they happen just like that. You get a sudden group of big waves that might break or a couple of big waves that break on the sandbar. The water level piles up, and it just pushes this rip current out. And it might only last for a minute or less, and then it disappears. And then you might get another one occur 50 meters further up the beach, 50 meters further down the beach, and they just keep popping up everywhere. I heard this term in the U.S. They call them popcorn rips. They just pop up. And they're very difficult to see because they they look like turbulent water, clouds of sand. And and you might be on the beach and, and see one, and then it's gone a minute later. But where people get in trouble is they might be standing on the sandbar safe and sound, and then this flash rip develops, and, and off they go. So they're tricky. Um, very hard. You can't, you know, a channelized rip current, you can see it, and you can keep away from it. But flash rips, you know, if it's messy, if the waves are messy or big, that's generally when they occur, which is not normally the greatest swimming conditions, but but they're the tough ones. It's a good idea, you say, not to swim close to any physical boundary on a beach. You mean a headland or something like that, do you? Yeah, I mean a headland. I mean a rock outcrop, uh, a groin or a jetty or a pier, anything like that that's a structure on a beach. What tends to happen is, you know, water generally flows along the beach in some direction when the waves come in at different directions. So if it's flowing along the beach and it hits this structure, it just gets deflected offshore. And often... You know, these rips are there almost all the time. Um, you, we sometimes give them names. So generally, if you're going to a, a beach or a beach you've never been to before, you just and it's got breaking waves, you just want to avoid swimming next to structures like headlands and rocks and jetties. Your general advice is, if in doubt, don't go out. Um, your book isn't just about rips. It's a fascinating read that explores the whole history of oceans and sand and the geology, the geology of it all. It's a great reference book, but we're concentrating on small aspects. I was reading about how individual waves in Hawaii can catch you by surprise with their power because Hawaii sits in the middle of the Pacific and waves, I think, have a lot of room to gather strength. And I thought, hang on, we live in the middle of the Pacific Ocean too. There'll be, the, there'll be those waves when you go swimming in New Zealand, won't there? Oh, absolutely, um, particularly on the West Coast. So, I'm thinking the West Auckland coast and up near, um, you know, 90 mile beach and even the West coast beaches, they're getting big, long swell. And I guess the East coast does to a degree as well, but it's mostly the West coast. And when you get these big energy waves and these big energy beaches where you've got lots of water, every now and then that water sort of piles up in the surf zone and just surges up the beach really fast. Um, they're often called sneaker waves and you can Google it and you can look up sneaker waves where one minute the, you know, the shoreline's nice and stable where it is, and you're, and then all of a sudden this sudden rush goes up the beach. Um, that's a real thing. It's not it's not a tsunami. It, it, it's, it's just something that happens on big, high-energy coastlines uh, from time to time. And um, I had some colleagues actually doing an experiment at Murawai Beach, and at night, you know, they sort of had their equipment in their trucks sort of at the base of the dunes, and they were just swamped one night by one of these sneaker waves. So, it's just something to be aware of when you have a lot of breaking waves and the waves are particularly big. Fishing off rocks is dangerous. Why? We often hear about the fatalities and we wonder what the 
the angler did wrong, but it's not necessarily the um, person fishing doing anything wrong. Why is it so dangerous? Well, it's it's dangerous. They call it a sport rock fishing, but it's a dangerous activity in general because most rock fishing happens from rock platforms or shore platforms, which are sticking out into the ocean. So they are taking these rock platforms, the full brunt of wave energy. So there's a very turbulent environment there. And um, if, you know, and rock platforms are slippery surfaces. And if you slip and fall and you fall into the water off of the rock platform, it's easy to fall in, but it's difficult to get back out because there's a lot of turbulence there. And, and you're hitting rocks. They're just dangerous environments. And also when you do get these wave sets come in, you might go uh, rock fishing and it's the ocean looks fairly calm. There's this bit of a swell running and, and the rock platform looks looks safe. But you go down, you set up, and you might get a, a set come in every 20 minutes that's big and overtops the rock platform and you get in trouble. So, you know, you have to be experienced being a rock fisher and you have to know your times and your locations. It's, it's an extremely dangerous um, activity or can be. Yeah, I'm glad I asked you. Uh, in here, your book, in your book is an idiot's guide to driving on a beach. Uh, with, 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 I've been that idiot uh, with tips we may not have thought of uh, aside from people pushing really does help which I saw uh, which I laughed at uh, there's nothing you can really do if your car gets stuck I mean when I say it's an idiot's guide it won't help many idiots will it well I'm an idiot I, I am hopeless at driving on the beach <laughs> I think I've pretty much been bogged on every beach I've been at and um the the secret is is that if you are driving on a beach, hopefully in a four wheel drive, yeah, and you do get bogged, you can try and dig it out. But the best thing is just let air out of your tires. Mm. Um, that's the magic solution. Is not too much air, but 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 let enough air that you can get out, and um, that's that's the secret. But I <laughs> I still avoid driving on beaches. I I'm not terrified of it. Why are black sand beaches supposedly cursed? Well, that's interesting. I mean, there's a lot of black sand beaches in New Zealand. Yes. My problem with black sand beaches is that they get bloody hot when it's sunny, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but but if you go to places like Hawaii, uh, you know, there's lovely black sand beaches. People want to take it as a souvenir. And there's all sorts of stories you can find that say that, well, you're going to get a curse for taking this black sand away. I did a little bit of digging with this, and it was apparently actually a story that was made up by a park ranger in Hawaii many years ago because he got fed up with, with so many people taking sand from the beaches. And it's stuck, and it's kind of translated to many beaches around the world. That If you take the black sand, you're going to have a curse. But it's not true, I don't think, but you never know. Well, you'd know because you collect sand in little bottles, don't you, from the beaches of the world? I do, and um, I've got black sand from Hawaii, but I, I made sure other people got it for me. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I've got, a, I've got a nice collection. It's... Uh, it's very tricky of you. I'd love to see the purple sand of California that you mention in the book. How purple is it? Yeah. Oh, well, it's lovely. It's I think it's garnet. I'm, I'm, uh, this is embarrassing. I'm not really good at my geology and mineralogy. I only collect the sand because I like it. It looks good. I don't analyze it or anything. But <laughs> there was a purple sand beach called uh, Pfeiffer Beach um, on the Big Sur coastline, and I got my sand sample. But I got a whole bunch of sand samples that trip, and when I went back to Australia – customs took it away from me so it looked like little flakes of purple um that that you know in the sun just looked spectacular mm. um but yeah customs has a habit of taking my sand away <laughs> last question rob rescuing people 
you know, we read with admiration uh, and we often read about it, someone else dying while trying to rescue a person who sometimes survives and, you know, and, and gets back to shore on their own. I've never been called upon to rescue anybody. You say be careful, actually, when you see someone in trouble. Yeah, these are called bystander rescues. So it's when a member of a public, you know, not a lifeguard, not a lifesaver, see somebody in trouble and they go in and they rescue that person. And often that person can be a family member, it can be a child. But tragically, and it seems to be getting more common, it's the person who goes in who ends up drowning. And often these are associated with rip currents. Um, basically, well, let's let's say if you're a parent and you're on a beach and there's no lifeguards around, or maybe there is, but, but you see your child stuck in a rip current, of course you're going to run in mm. um, as a parent. But it's important not to rush in. Uh, you need to take some time. You need to take 10 seconds or whatever and think. Because if you rush in, you're running. You're probably tired by the time you get to the beach. You're going to swim as fast as you can to get to that person, which is, means you're probably also tired. And you're exhausted. And that's why these people drown. But if you are going to go in, and this is so important, you look around for something on the beach that floats. So maybe somebody has a kid's boogie board lying around or or a, um, a cooler lid or a ball, anything that floats, that's what you want to bring with you if you're going to go in. Um, but please just don't rush in. It's so dangerous. And often the person stuck in the rip or whatever is probably not panicking as much as you are, and that's why they end up being okay. Yeah. It's the saddest of occurrences when you read about them. Well, that's no, terrible. Thank you very much, Rob. A pleasure to talk to you. Thanks very much, Jim. Dr. Rip, Rob Brander. Hi, Jim. Tomahawk Beach and Oddity Beach both get sneaker waves that uh, Rob described. Scarborough Beach in Christchurch has some mean rips, Jim. With the headland there, it's a dangerous spot, especially at high tide. A lot of people get caught out, says Nick. Jim, it's not just rips. Sleeply, a steeply sloping beach and a big tide can sweep people out too. I was on a West Coast beach once and plucked up courage to tell some tourists it was really dangerous.